This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. If anything, I think what people are completely unaware of today is the fact that there is a possibility of self-deception in this area. Welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm your host, Jonathan Master, and today we're going to try something a little bit different, although we have done it once or twice before. My good friend, Jeff Stuyvesant, who is the pastor of Grace Reformed Presbyterian Church in Gibsonia, Pennsylvania, is going to, as it were, take the microphone and take the lead on this interview because he wanted to talk to me about the doctrine of assurance. So we're still going to be having a conversation, but it's one in which Jeff will be asking the questions and I will be attempting to provide answers. So Jeff, thanks for your willingness to do this. Uh, Jonathan, it's my pleasure. It's good good to be with you. And uh, I don't want to just talk to you about the doctrine of assurance. You've written a book called A Question of Consensus, The Doctrine of Assurance After the Westminster Confession. And we wanted to talk to you about that and clue our readers into the book if they're not aware of it, but also help them to understand some of the things that you are working with in the book, because assurance has been one of those difficult matters for people, not just now, but in the past. And you're looking at the Westminster Confession as a consensus document as it relates to that particular issue. So we want to talk to you about that. We think it's really important. So let me begin with a question. What did assurance look like during and shortly after the Reformation? Set the stage for us. To be honest, and there's debate about this in academic circles, but to be honest, I think it looked fairly similar to the way it looked around the time of the Westminster Confession. So one of the differences is that some of the things took some time to work themselves out. But when you read Calvin, for instance, and certainly when you read Theodore Beza, what you find is that they were talking to people especially in Calvin's sermons, he was talking to people whom he knew had struggles with their assurance of salvation. So, you know, it gets a little bit tricky because some of the language that he uses differs from the language that's used later on by, uh, you know, the English Puritans and those who were involved in the Westminster Confession. But essentially, I think if you read his sermons, you see the same kinds of things. You see people who are Christian people who are struggling with a firm knowledge of whether or not they are actually saved. And so he gives them the kind of counsel that pastors, I think, have always given, which is, you know, a counsel about looking to Christ and trusting in the promises of God's word and looking at your own life and seeing the fruit borne by the Holy Spirit in it. Okay, so what it looked like in the time of the Reformation has some overlap with what it looks like in the assembly. So if you could summarize what it looks like in the assembly, what what does it look like as it emerges from those discussions and obviously from the document? The Westminster Confession makes, I think, three key points in its chapter on assurance. The first is that there is a possibility of assurance. In other words, that you can actually know for sure. And that might seem really obvious, and it almost might seem to be a, a kind of presupposition of even our conversation today. But the reality is that the Roman Catholic Church denied this, that you can actually know for certain. In the Council of Trent, they anathematized those who declared that someone could have assurance, firm assurance of salvation. So Westminster says, no, 
it is possible to have firm assurance of salvation, to know that you are a child of God, to know that you are bound for heaven. But they also say that there is a possibility as well of a false assurance. In other words, that you can think that you are a believer, you can deceive yourself through all kinds of means, and you can you can have others deceive you as well. So they say there's a possibility of real assurance, but there's also this possibility of false assurance. And then I think the third thing that Westminster makes clear that's helpful for us is that is that even true believers can have a sort of ebb and flow in their assurance mm-hmm. of salvation, that it's, it's possible through, through all kinds of circumstances that you can lose a sense of your assurance before God, and that's not necessarily an indicator that, that in fact you are not a believer, but it, it's just one of the realities of the Christian life with its ups and downs, some of which might be caused by our own sins, some of which might be caused by circumstances that really bring these things into doubt in our minds. So I think those three things are maybe a helpful way to walk through what the Westminster Confession says. You can have assurance. You can also kid yourself and be deceived. And it can come and go depending on circumstances. That's really helpful. That's that's really helpful. Let me ask you one of those questions, and we're going to get to some pastoral questions in a minute, but let me ask you one of those questions that I'm sure there are people out there who are asking this one, and it's really this. What are the what are the similarities and differences between Westminster and the Reformation, if any? And you've already hinted to the fact that they're very similar, but here's here's the question. Are Calvin and Westminster really different. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you yeah. thought of that. No, yeah. that's I mean that's that sort of simple question actually summarizes, you know, more or less 50 years of of <laughs> scholarly debate of kind of back and forth. Uh, many people could trace this to a number of different individuals, but for instance Karl Barth, very well-known scholar, Karl Barth tried to accentuate the differences and he sort of placed the reformers in this category of being biblical and pure in many respects and then and then the english puritans sort of overcomplicated things or added these elements of introspection or or scholasticism and therefore there are big differences and a lot of a lot of scholars went down that road so i've already said i don't think the differences are as stark as they're made out to be there are some differences and i would place them really in two locations first there is sometimes a difference in terminology Calvin very famously said that assurance is of the essence of faith. In other words, he seems to place assurance as something that is essential, an essential component of faith. So people have taken that and made a great deal out of it because in Westminster they say assurance is not of the essence of faith. In other words, you can genuinely believe and not be certain for sure that you're Christian. I don't think that difference is as great as it sounds on the surface. I think Calvin is talking about our confidence in the promises of God in that context. I don't think he's talking about our subjective sense of assurance that those that those promises are meant for us and that we ourselves are inheritors of those promises. So I think that just putting those two sentences side by side makes it seem as if they're saying radically different things. When in fact, I don't think they are. Like I said, I think when you get into Calvin's sermons, what you find is 
much the same kind of counsel and, and many of the same categories that you find in Westminster. But there is a difference in terminology, and I think we need to be aware of that sometimes. The second difference that I think you see is that I do think that by the time you get to the Westminster Confession, the pastors who were collectively formulating these consensus statements had, um, well, there was a great deal of pastoral wisdom that was brought to bear on them. In other words, I do think some of these things got worked out and some of the terminology got sharpened and clarified in ways that you don't see in the first, perhaps, generation of reformers. I don't take that to mean they're saying different things. I just take it to mean they're they have expanded upon some of the things that were said early on. And you see, for instance, between even Calvin and Beza, some differences in terms of how they're fleshing this out. Beza fleshes it out in terms of syllogisms, and Calvin doesn't seem to do that. And so, and so there are some streams that get picked up in different ways by the time you get to the point of the Westminster Confession. But in my mind, most of it can be chalked up to, you know, pastoral experience and sort of clarifying terms. And I think that probably summarizes it. Okay. And that's really helpful. And it sort of leads us into the next question. And that is really, in some ways, moving beyond the document of Westminster itself to, you know, the actual people who may have had something to do with it and people who moved beyond it. And so you deal with Anthony Burgess, you have Thomas Goodwin and John Owen in here, and you also deal with, I mean, this is called on the back of the book, an exciting book, a new and exciting book. And it really is because you're dealing with all kinds of things that pertain to the doctrine of assurance that everybody has questions about, like the sealing of the spirit and syllogisms, like you just mentioned. So can you walk us through, it may be really what you've already said, but it, it needs to be asked, did the doctrine really undergo a change after Westminster, or was it sharpened and nuanced and, you know, sort of what was already there fleshed out? Can you just talk about that for a minute? What I think you see right after Westminster, and Burgess and Goodwin and Owen are good examples because all three of them, while they weren't all involved in the Westminster Confession, maybe Burgess was, but they all would have agreed with what the Westminster Confession says. But what you do see is that they expand upon it and emphasize different aspects of it, particularly as it works out in pastoral ministry. So, for instance, Goodwin and Owen tend to emphasize what we might think of as a more, this is a loaded term, but a more subjective or kind of mystical aspect of assurance that you need to work really hard to be sure that you know and sort of feel in your heart the spirit the spirit ministering to you and assuring you of your adoption as God's son whereas Burgess tends to move in a more concrete or might say objective direction that's not as focused on inward dispositions and in the ministry of the spirit in my heart but more on actual concrete realities that I can see in my life. So you do see, I think, different streams. Now, at that stage, when you're talking about Burgess and Owen and Goodwin, at that stage, all of them would have absolutely affirmed the statements that the confession makes. And so it's not as if they're trying to move in these radically different directions or that they even 
saw themselves at a basic level as being at odds. But I think when they worked it out in pastoral ministry and in their sermons, uh, you do find different emphases. And probably, although I haven't done this in any detailed and comprehensive way, but probably it's the case that these streams do sort of flow into different traditions, probably even today. So there are uh, traditions of churches and denominations and people groups who all hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith, but sort of particularly on assurance, really tackle it at a pastoral level in what seem to be very different ways. And that's, I think, because Westminster doesn't give clear direction about uh, the means by which you can grow in assurance. It gives some sort of basic outlines, but it's more concerned with establishing the three points that I mentioned earlier, that it's possible and that it the deception is also possible and that it can come and go. Okay, so you mentioned, uh, you know, there being a more subjective stream and then a more objective stream. And I remember reading, I think it was in Richard Baxter, and he said, for every time you look inwardly, you need to look 10 more times at Christ. You know, he was sort of trying to balance those two streams. My question is of a more contemporary and pastoral one, and that is, out of your study, what do you tell a pastor who comes to you and says, you know, how do I minister to my people? How do I, how do I help someone who comes to me and asks me about assurance of salvation? Well, I think Baxter's advice is, is great advice. And when I have either pastors come to me and ask that question or individuals who are struggling with assurance come to me and ask that, that question, I try to give them similar counsel to, to Baxter's. Um, I think that the New Testament points us in a couple different directions. And I want to give a full answer when someone asks me that. So one direction, and I think perhaps the more objective direction is the kind of thing that Baxter said, which is you look to the promises of God. You look to what God has done in Christ. You look to what Christ has promised. So Christ promised the one who comes to me, I will not cast out and I will raise him up on the last day. That's a promise of Christ. And so then you can move from that and say, have I come to Christ in faith? Well, he promised that those who come to him, he will not cast out, but will raise them up on the last day. And so that's a way of holding on to something that Christ himself has said, looking to him, looking to what he has done and what he has said and grabbing a hold of that. I think that's the very sound and helpful way of growing in assurance. I also do think, though, that the Bible says, for instance, if you think about something like Second Peter chapter 1, it connects assurance, a growing assurance of, of the faith with our growth in, we might say, spiritual fruitfulness or, you know, in virtue in, in various respects. And so, and I don't think that's unbiblical to say, are there evidences of my own growth in grace? Now that starts to become difficult because we all, if we're, if we're self-aware, can look at ourselves and say, well, yes, but I also see this presence of sin in my life that still seems very pervasive. And so, that moves you a little further away from something that's absolutely rock solid. But nonetheless, it's it's something that the New Testament points us to. Look to your life. So you're looking to Christ. You're looking to your life. And then I do think in the New Testament, there is this, we could say, subjective. That's probably not the best term, but yeah, I know I used it, but it's it may not be the best term. But there is this, this reality in Romans 8 
talks about the Spirit's ministry in our hearts, the Spirit testifying with our spirit that we are children of God and if children, then heirs. And so I do think there is that internal component where the Holy Spirit ministers to us, we might say in a, in a mystical or a subjective sense. So there are three things I think that I can see that the, the New Testament itself points us to. And, and I would want to put those in front of any pastor or any person who's struggling with this in their own lives. Jonathan, I have two more questions for you. One is, you may not be able to answer it. I was reading a a biography on Jonathan Edwards, and it said that most of his counseling had to do with people lacking in assurance. And frankly, that has not been my experience as a pastor over 25 years. I'm really curious about your own experience as you've done this kind of in-depth study and your own counseling and pastoral experience. Have you have you noticed that this is something people struggle with or have you noticed that maybe back then, but today they struggle with other things or have you been able to bring the different strands together and say, yeah, they're really struggling with this issue, but it kind of masks itself as this. What, what What's your response to that? My experience, I think mirrors yours. I, um, if anything, I think what people are completely unaware of today is the fact that there is a possibility of self-deception in this area. In other words, in other words, if I were to pick a topic that is covered in the Westminster chapter on assurance of the three that I mentioned, I think the one that is most acutely needed in terms of teaching is the possibility of false assurance. One of the things that struck me when I read Burgess was how much space and time he devoted to that reality. Many, many of his sermons were actually not on, here's how you can find assurance, but here are the things that you shouldn't look to. Here are the things that, in fact, you may be looking to, but are are giving you false hope and false confidence. So I think that's a bigger problem today. And that probably stems from an a lack of awareness about the seriousness of our sin and uh, the holiness of God. Whenever I have given any talks kind of on the topic that we're we're discussing you know just what is the what does the bible say about assurance or what did what did the reformers and westminster confession say about assurance whenever i've given that when i share that key insight which was absolutely held by the reformers and absolutely emphasized by the westminster divines and and is in the new testament i think as well this insight about the possibility of false assurance that's where people really sort of sit up and begin to scratch Mm. their heads. That doesn't sound to them like what Christian teaching consists of. And so, yeah, I haven't really had many cases, a few, a a few. In fact, actually, well, there was one just recently where, or someone came and was very unsure about her own standing before the Lord and really lacked that kind of assurance. But for the most part, you're right. It hasn't been the mainstay of my own experience in counseling. But I think this other aspect probably needs to be emphasized a little bit more in our own day. Okay. Well, let me ask you this last question. And it's simply beyond your own book, which I personally would recommend people pick up and read it. It is, it's a really helpful read, but beyond your book, what other resources would you recommend on this topic? If you want to know more about the history of it, 
there are a couple of places you could go. Joel Beakey has written an awful lot about assurance, both at the practical level and at the kind of historical level. So his dissertation was, was published by Peter Lang, and it's called Assurance of Faith. And then a kind of modified version of that was published by the Banner of Truth. It's called The Quest for Full Assurance. Those, again, are much more about the history of the doctrine than about all the practical implications. But I, I think there's overlap there. He's also got a book coming out soon called Knowing and Growing in Assurance of Faith, which I think is going to be a very helpful book in terms of the more uh, practical level um, understanding of it. There was a book recently uh, written by Sinclair Ferguson called The Whole Christ. It's a little bit of a historical book at one level, but it gives you a window into a period of, of Scottish church history in which assurance was at issue. But what Ferguson does so beautifully is not only does he kind of walk you through what happened historically to precipitate this, but also kind of walks you through the issues involved in, in I think, a very powerful way. I would really commend the whole Christ to people. There's also a little article on the Banner of Truth website written by Jeff Thomas. It was just written this past summer, and it's called simply Assurance of Salvation. That's a short introduction that's very that very much deals with it in terms of the on-the-ground realities of our heart. I believe he may have written it in the context of a, a communion uh, message or something like that. But anyway, that's called Assurance of Salvation by Jeff Thomas. Those are a few places to get you started. There's some really good articles out there. Like I said, Beaky's written a number of articles about this, and um, that, those are worth checking out. Okay. Well, Jonathan, we know you are busy at Cairn and busy with the Alliance and uh, many other things. So we thank you for taking the time out to, to prepare for this interview. And it's a much needed topic and it's a great book. And so thanks so much. Hey, thanks, Jeff. I appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to Theology on the Go. Today, Jeff Stuyvesant interviewed me about a book that I wrote that was published in 2015 called A Question of Consensus, The Doctrine of Assurance After the Westminster Confession. We'd love to give this away to one of you. Uh, so if you would, log on to placefortruth.org and click on the Theology on the Go link, and there'll be a link there that you can enter to win a copy of A Question of Consensus. As always, we thank you for listening to Theology on the Go. Theology on the Go and all the things that the Alliance does are really not possible without the support of listeners like you. So if you are able to make a donation and you'd like to do so, you can do that on placefortruth.org or you can do it on alliancenet.org. Tell your friends about Theology on the Go. It's accessible on the website placefortruth.org. It's also accessible on iTunes. And we love to get feedback from you. So if there are things that we can improve upon or guests that you'd like us to see, please drop us a note and let us know. Thanks again for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. <laughs>